I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. I think uh, there's a few people here, and a very few, that would remember uh, Dr. Cedarholm, our founder, and uh, they used to say that your Bible should fall right open to Matthew 16, 18, and he would often preach from that. And uh, today, I'm going to be preaching from Acts chapter 2, and particularly verse 41, and if there was any text in the scripture that uh, I would be found preaching more often than another. I think it would be this one, and I I have done so for many different aspects, Acts chapter 2. Today, the title of the message is The Ordinances Teach Us. The Ordinances Teach Us. And uh, I know that you might say, well, we just had a great revival week. We've heard all these great messages. And uh, why would you pick something that's more teachy, uh, your first chapel, than than, you know, just preaching and keeping on with what we've been doing. I have a couple of reasons uh, why I have chosen to do that today. But first, let me read the text. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. And so I've used this outline many times. You heard it in class if you're in my Baptist Distinctives class. They uh, gladly received the word. They, they believed the word that Peter preached. They were baptized, and then they were at it. Uh, they belonged. Believed, baptized, belonged. And they continued. They behaved. Uh, they were part of the local church, and uh, they did uh, what local church people ought to be doing. And so Uh, My first reason for wanting to preach this message today is, frankly, uh, some of you don't know why you're here, all right? And uh, I want to let you know why uh, you are here uh, and what Maranatha stands for. Uh, We are definitely uh, a Baptist school, all right? We're Baptists. We're dispensational Baptists. Our school song and our name tells you that, Maranatha, uh, lo, he cometh. And so we're dispensational Baptists. We're independent and we're separatist Baptists. We might say we're fundamental Baptists, and that's what we are. And uh, I believe that the ordinances teach us, at least uh, tangentially, uh, all of those things. I think they're very clear about what we ought to be as believers and as local church people. Now, the truth is, Maranatha is not a church. Uh, Surprise, surprise. Maranatha exists to support and help equip local churches by the development of leaders for the local church. And that be you, all right? That be all of us. That's what Maranatha is about doing, is to make you a leader so you can be productive. Uh, You can be in the local church and actually be a contributor uh, to the cause of Christ there, to advance the cause of the gospel. Every one of us is called uh, to do that. Now, this present culture seems overly inclined to acceptance, toleration, and unity. Now, these can be great qualities within the framework of truth, uh, but never at the expense of biblical obedience. And so what we're going to say today, I think, is very important and must not be distorted. Uh, We must not allow for uh, other interpretations to have equal standing uh, with what the Bible teaches us about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, there's a second reason why I've chosen to speak on this today. 
and that is this is the 209th anniversary of the baptism of our first Baptist missionaries, Adoniram and Ann Judson. Some of you, how many of you live in Judson? Girls, no, nobody raise your hand. Guys, how many of you live in Judson? Okay, uh, some of you may not even know. I, I ran into somebody uh, last week and I said, what dorm, Judson? Oh, that's a great dorm. Uh, do you know how the dorm got its name? And they didn't. And that's a sad thing. We're gonna make sure that by the time you leave Maranatha, you know the reason why all the dorms uh, were named as they were named. And so in order to appreciate the decision of the Judsons to be missionaries, but more importantly today, to become Baptist, we've got to understand a little bit about their background. And so it's going to take me probably two-thirds of this message actually to get to the text, but I think you'll understand why. Adonai Judson was a congregationalist. He was a congregationalist when he set sail uh, from America. On the boat, he and Ann were congregationalists, and they were heading out to Calcutta, where they would then go to Myanmar, Burma in those days, and uh, they were going to see William Carey, uh, the English Baptist, and they thought, whoa, wait a minute, we better sharpen up on our study of baptism. We better figure out how we're going to debate that guy or confront that guy or stand our ground with that guy, and they began to study the doctrine of baptism. In order to appreciate this decision of the Judsons ultimately to become Baptists, to be immersed, I think we do well to look at their heart condition. Now, no one can look at someone's heart, but we can see the expression of their heart. They were not without affection for Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They were no way inferior in their dedication to God uh, than the best of Baptists, believe me. On February 18, 1812, Adoniram and his wife Anne, they were only 21 and 22 years old, boarded the caravan uh, in uh, Salem, Massachusetts to set sail uh, for uh, Asia. Now, you know how long they'd been married? Two weeks. Two weeks, and they got on this boat, and they're heading away from their family and friends and life here in America, in their mind, permanently, and so, so that to be the case. Adoniram's conversion had resulted in a passionate concern for the souls that had never heard the gospel, and he applied to become a missionary then through the congregational churches. During the interview process, they were all invited uh, to the home of someone with status in the church and a Christian family. And at that time, Adoniram set his heart upon Anne Hazelton, okay? One month later, he wrote to her father, I have now to ask whether you consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of of missionary life, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? May I just pause here? It's not in my message, but the point I'm going to try to make here is that just because we believe that we have got 
this matter of baptism correctly interpreted from the Bible, and I'm going to give you some hard and fast guidelines today, that does not mean, do not misinterpret that I'm saying that everybody else is kind of inferior in their Christian walk uh, with Jesus Christ. It's a matter of knowledge, understanding, as well as obedience. And you've been privileged to have some insight, and I hope that you will appreciate it enough to obey. And so Anne was given the choice by her father whether he sh- she should marry Adoniram or not and to leave all that she knew for the unknown. And here's what she wrote. I rejoice that I'm in God's hands, that he is everywhere present and can protect me in one place as well as in another. He has my heart in his hands. And when I am called to fierce danger to pass through the scenes of terror and distress, he can inspire me with fortitude and enable me to trust in him. Jesus is faithful. His promises are precious. Many thought these two were insane to do what they wanted to do. But they determined that Christ didn't issue the Great Commission on condition of their health or their comfort or their safety. I think we heard it in the last message from our evangelist. Don't make your decisions based on any of those things about how you should serve God, where you should serve God, what you should do for the Lord. Shortly after arrival in Burma, Anne's journal records this, if it may please the dear Redeemer to make me the instrument of leading some of the females of Burma to a saving acquaintance with him, my great object would be accomplished, my highest desires, desires gratified. I shall rejoice to have relinquished my comforts, my country, my home. When shall cruel, idolatrous, avaricious Burma know that thou art the God of the whole world, the whole earth, and alone deserveth the homage and adoration of all creatures. Hasten it, Lord, in thine own time. We're talking about deeply committed people that are walking with Jesus Christ. And so Adoniram, the first U.S. Baptist missionary, and his wife Anne sailed from our shores as Congregationalists. And faced with that meeting of the Baptist missionary team in India, they began to study the subject of infant baptism by sprinkling, and they wanted to settle the matter from the Bible once and for all. The Judsons landed at Calcutta on June 17, 1812. Anne feared that Adoniram was cracking, that he might become a Baptist. And so literally, you know, in a spiritual way, threatening him, she wrote, I tried to have him give it up and rest satisfied in his old sentiments, and frequently I told him, if he became a Baptist, I would not. In self-defense, Anne began to study herself. Surely the Bible said something in favor of infant baptism. And so for two more months after arriving in Calcutta, the young missionaries studied the subject. Later, Anne wrote, Mr. J feels convinced from Scripture that he has never been baptized and that he cannot conscientiously administer baptism to infants. But I must acknowledge that the face of Scripture does favor the Baptist sentiments. And so their conclusion was stated in a letter by Mr. Judson 
that the immersion of a professing believer is the only Christian baptism. Luther Rice, the other member of their missionary team, also came to that same conclusion. Adoniram and Anne were baptized by immersion 209 years ago today, September 6th, 1812 in Calcutta. And Anne wrote this classic, Thus we are confirmed Baptists, not because we wish to be, but because the truth compelled us to be. We have endeavored to count the cost. We anticipate the loss of reputation. Now the question is, in face of all that, why would anyone choose to become a Baptist? Because the truth compelled us to be. Dr. Cummins, my wife's father, in this day in Baptist history wrote this, and realized that the Baptists were looked down upon in America being faithful to a tender conscience, Baptists were considered rather peculiar by the more established churches. Whether their activities were concealed or revealed, Baptists were the objects of some contempt, and union with them surely would wound and grieve her dear Christian friends in America. At great price, the Judsons had put conviction ahead of convenience, and God rewarded them with fruitfulness that only eternity can reveal. They were not guided by the crowd, nor by their friends, but by God and his word. What an important lesson to this generation, end of quote. Again, the question of baptism is not one of spirituality. It's not one of, the de of dedication of any true believer. It's a question of understanding and then obedience to the truth that is understood. Historically, Baptists have been a persecuted people. They've been persecuted by both Rome and the Reformers. They were forced to worship in caves and catacombs and the cold forest of the Soviet Union. And even in the colonial days of this nation, America, Baptists of Virginia were imprisoned for preaching the gospel without a license. Only in America, with our constitutional guarantee of religious liberty that seems to be evaporating, do we have the privileges available to other religious groups. Here, Baptists have risen to the highest levels of society, but generally, they've been composed of the lower classes of society. Acts 2.41 gives the pattern that is followed throughout the book of Acts. They first believed, they were baptized, and they belonged. Again, in those very few words, we find infant baptism ruled out. What infant can believe? And no one can believe for you, so no infant baptism. At the same time, it excludes from membership anyone that is not baptized, that is scripturally baptized, baptized after their profession of faith, which rules out some kind of, you know, belief on the part of somebody else for an infant uh, to be baptized, and then later somehow uh, to come to some kind of faith. It's all reversed. It's all backwards. It's not the gospel. You see, the ordinances have it in the right order. Believe, they believed and then they were baptized, and upon their baptism, they belonged to the local church. They associated there. So the concept of a state church is equally excluded, which has individuals being baptized and part of the covenant and part of the state church from the very beginning. 
That's not what the church is all about, therefore separation of church and state. Now, a couple of sidelines here. The ordinances actually predate the birth of the church. Have you considered that? Baptism and the Lord's Supper predate the birth and organization of the church. Whatever else it may have meant, John's baptism was certainly anticipatory to the work of Christ. Likewise, the baptism performed by the apostles were prophetic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the second thing I note is the ordinances predate the completion of the canon of Scripture. They were practicing the ordinances here in the, at the birth of the church. And the canon of Scripture would not be completed for decades. And yet, they had the instructions of the ordinances, and they had the picture of Christ's work and our association with one another in the church uh, to guide them all of the way. You see, the two ordinances were designed to teach us. The early church did not have the completed scriptures, and, and the copies of them were rare. That's why we read in Revelation 1-3, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. It's not talking about you reading it independently, though that is true and that brings a blessing. But what it's talking about is blessed is the man that goes to the congregation and stands before them and reads the word of God so all may hear. And that's why we get to Colossians 4.16. And when this epistle, Colossians, is read among you, cause it to be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. Keep this thing going. Take it from church to church. May all the believers hear it. May it be read publicly in every church. Maybe you're seeing the connection already. Both ordinances were introduced as necessary and repeatable practices from the church's first gatherings. From the celebration of the ordinances, the gospel was pictured and preached, while church order and ministry received the direction that was necessary. Not that they allowed for autonomous and unusual interpretations, I'm sure, but as the epistles were written, the new information contained therein was found consistent with the ordinances that were practiced from the very beginning. In this way, the apostles were teaching soteriology, doctrine of salvation, showing how Christ died for them and raised again, and that ecclesiology was also taught until the completion of the canon of truth the ordinances would provide support for this instruction. Now, what's, what's the contrast here? I think it's important to see that. Many churches, both Protestant and Reformed, put great emphasis on the Eucharist. That is what we call the Lord's Supper, but they have twisted it. And they put emphasis on baptism, which again is infant baptism. And both of these are considered a means of receiving grace. They're, they're sacraments. They're not ordinances. Baptism is usually performed on infants as a means of bringing them into the covenant of the church. And the Eucharist provides continuing grace and conveys to the recipient the true presence of Christ in one form or another. Not sacraments, not in Baptist churches, the two ordinances properly understood and practiced distinguish us from these. For, for Baptist churches, the ordinances are divinely ordained 
pictures, illustrations, or memorials to the truth of the person and work of Christ, as well as the application of those truths to the Christian life and to church ministry. Now think of it this way. Uh, probably no great artist Rembrandt's in this crowd, but a person painting a portrait reproduces the likeness of the subject as closely as possible. So in the coming decades, when someone looks at that picture, and centuries later in some cases, they'll have an accurate representation of the subject painted. Now, you know, that hasn't always been true. There have been controversies uh, among the kings who wanted their pictures painted what they might say in a favorable way, all right, uh, with, uh, you know, adding bulk, I'm sure, and adding beauty, I'm sure, as uh, the time went on. But normally, someone is painted as they are, and the representation is to be like taking a picture would be today. And that's what the ordinances are designed to do, to paint the right pictures, to perpetually show us the gospel of Christ and the organization of the local church. So let's be clear. We're not Baptists just because we choose to practice the ordinances in a certain way. We're Baptists because we immerse, okay? Well, that may be true, but we're Baptists because of what the ordinances teach us. We don't choose to do it a certain way. The ordinances teach us to do it a certain way and to practice our Christian faith and our church organization in a certain way. They give us perpetual guidance on Christianity in general, soteriology, and church polity, ecclesiology in particular. And if they are practiced correctly, the church will accurately proclaim the gospel of Christ and faithfully preserve the truth and local church polity. Let me illustrate. Is it the same gospel that we preach and that you preach and that you hold, that you baptize an infant and they, they are regenerated upon their infant baptism and then sometime 12 years later uh, they are confirmed in what they have received already. In other words, for 12 years they were a regenerate unbeliever and they become a believer some point in time later. Is that the gospel that we preach? Absolutely not. You say, well, not everybody that does that really thinks that. That's the problem. Their picture is communicating that that's what they think and that's what they believe. Our ordinances are there to teach us the truth of the gospel so that we practice it with clarity. And we do not distort the gospel of Christ by what we picture uh, to other people. Like driving on a highway. The ordinances are our road markers to keep us traveling in the right direction. My navigator is sitting right there. And uh, she usually has GPS on her phone. We've got it on the car. And, and we don't have to fool with these maps anymore. But I remember the day when we did. And uh, she was really a navigator back then. All right. But we follow the signs and we make sure that the signs are the right signs to keep us going in the right direction and if we're not the sign something else we have to turn around and find our way the ordinances are like that but they're also the lane lines and the guardrails to keep us safely on the road okay I have lane departure on my car. How many of you have it or see it or whatever? And just as soon as I get out of the lane a little bit, it goes. And uh, if you're trying to sleep in the passenger seat, 
you know, you're thankful if the driver will just stay in the middle of the lane, okay, and uh, won't wake you up. Uh, but those are warning devices that tell us danger, something's wrong, and the ordinances are like that. If they're not practiced correctly, you're going to find distortion in the gospel presentation. You're going to find distortion in how you conduct yourself uh, in the local church. So now we're to the text. Can you believe it? These are local church ordinances. Where are they to be practiced? Obviously, Acts 2 in the local church. And they got the idea that the baptized should be added to the church from the Great Commission, no doubt. Baptism of church ordinance, and likewise the practice of the local uh, practice of the local church with the Lord's Supper assumes a church association for the participants. We won't go into all that, but repeatedly it says in 1 Corinthians 11, when ye come together, and when ye come together in the church, it's not to be practiced autonomously. It's not to be practiced outside the meeting or a meeting of the local church. Baptism of believers by immersion signifies entrance into fellowship with the church. And the Lord's Supper is an ordinance which stresses local church fellowship. We've come together. Corinthians had divisions. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about that. When you get to the Lord's Supper aspect, there were still divisions. They were divided. Some had a lot and some had, and they weren't sharing. And, and uh, they were rebuked for that because the Lord's Supper signifies that we all stand on level ground before the cross. There's not one group better than another, not the rich or the poor, the educated, the uneducated, the Jew or the Gentile. Everyone is the same. We take the Lord's Supper on level ground with one another before the cross of Christ. No favorites at the Lord's table. And so these ordinances help us to find the local church, its membership, and its practice. And, and their meaning is interconnected, one teaching one thing and the other connected to it, teaching another that are very important. And together, they are for the protection and propagation of the principles of New Testament Christianity. Now, how are they related to one another? Well, they overlap in meaning. That is Lord's Supper and Baptism. They both proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection. We walk in newness of life with him, and the Lord's Supper then recognizes our present life of fellowship with him as the living Lord. And all of that is based upon the substitutionary atonement. One of the places, I'm not going to get sidetracked, but the woman that anointed Jesus with the alabaster box of ointment. It says that what she had done when this gospel is preached, associated with the gospel, was to be a memorial. That is a picture. It teaches something. That's the same as remembrance when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What she and others remembered from her actions is important. Who she is or was was important. So is the Lord. What she did is important. Why she did it is important. What was accomplished in what she did and what we should learn. She gave voluntarily, lovingly, abundantly, sacrificially, and extravagantly. And all of that, because it's this gospel, it says, all of that applies to Jesus Christ. And we see all of that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In baptism, I need total transformation. I need new life. In the Lord's Supper, I need fellowship with God daily. And I recognize that daily sin separates me from fellowship with him. That's why we go and we examine ourselves. That's why we need the cup. We need the cup every day to cleanse us from 
the dirt on our feet, our disobedience uh, to the Lord to bring us back into close fellowship. One ordinance then emphasizes conversion and the other sanctification. And by the way, a better understanding of this would enhance gospel clarity. True belief leads to commitment and produces a change in spiritual desires and direction. So if you've been uh, converted, it's going to lead to that progressive walk of sanctification. And we see both of those, baptism, Lord's Supper. Baptism initiates the walk, and the Lord's Supper continues that walk. Thirdly, and this is the last point, the ordinances differ in frequency and have a prescribed theological order. I've made this emphasis in my whole ministry, and I've been challenged on it many times. And it's only been recently, frankly, that I have studied a lot of the old writers and I found out that this is a big deal to Baptists 300 years ago, for instance. And it continues to be a big deal uh, to me as well. What's the frequency? One time versus often. Isn't that curious? You're baptized once, but you celebrate the Lord's Supper often. That ought to communicate something to us. That's why when I was in Israel for the second time, uh, I was there at the Jordan River. People were being baptized. I was rejoicing. I asked one of them how long they had been saved, and they said, oh, they'd been saved a long time, decades, and they had been baptized decades ago, but they just wanted to be baptized again to have, have it done in the Jordan River. They felt so much more spiritual. How many times are you saved? Say one, okay. How many times should you be baptized? Like one. I told my wife the other night, I think I, I just feel like I want to do something spiritual. I think I'll just get baptized again. So I felt so good when I was baptized the first time. And uh, that's, that's wrong. One time. Once for all salvation. The Lord's Supper is celebrated often because we need daily dependence on the bread and, and forgiveness on a daily basis. And what is the intended order of the ordinances? Well, justification comes before sanctification. Duh. You must begin with Christ before you can continue with Christ. <laughs> justification then comes before sanctification. Conversion uh, comes before fellowship in the local church. And so these ordinances do speak to body life. Baptism is entrance into the church, and the Lord's Supper is fellowship with the people of God in the church. So we go all the way back to Acts 2. It describes the order of the ordinances just as certainly as it describes the need for conversion before baptism. And it's my opinion that this description becomes a prescription as we observe in Acts and go through the New Testament that that is the order that is practiced on every occasion. These are perpetual ordinances. We practice baptism until the end of the age, Matthew 28. And we practice the Lord's Supper till he comes, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. The ordinances protect both the gospel and the New Testament church order. They teach us about Christ, his person and work, but they also direct our responsibilities in and through the local churches. So two points, put them up and uh, we'll be done. Baptism is the sign of church membership commitment, and responsibility. Do not take it lightly 
Do not give allowance for differing views. Be gracious as Christians at all times. But do not allow yourself to be compromised on what you believe. It's very, very important. And secondly, the Lord's Supper is the sign of faithful adherence to Christ, faithful adherence to his church, and faithful adherence to his commandments. It's the ordinance that speaks of our faithfulness to the gospel, to the Savior, and to his people. And may God help us to understand the great sacrifices of our ancestors that have been willing to live and to die for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the truth of the gospel and for these ordinances, these pictures that are to accurately represent the gospel that we have believed. Let's pray. Father, you're certainly good. You've been gracious to us. You've given us a lot of truth to practice. I pray we would do so faithfully. I pray we would do so, Lord, with courage, and I pray we would do so with perseverance. We pray in Christ's name, amen.